says the, that uncertainty is the only certainty. But then I read somebody else said, uh, death is the only certainty. But then I read somebody else that said, change is the only thing you can be certain of. It seems that there's a whole lot of people writing about certainty and a whole lot of people who are certain about certainty, but everybody seems to be uncertain about what is certain. Do you follow me? <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> the Gospel of Luke is about having full assurance. Full assurance of the life, the ministry, the accomplishments, the work of Jesus Christ. So I'm very excited to delve into this uh, wonderful, wonderful gospel. It is the one gospel we have not covered in the 15 years that I have been blessed to be pastor of this church. And so, um, so here we go. I guess we should probably begin by discussing what is it that we or what can we know about Luke? Well, one of the things we know about Luke is that he is the second most influential author in the New Testament. Did you know that? Here's here's how we come to that. Luke wrote two books in the Bible. Of course, this one. And what other one? Acts. Okay, so basically when you consider Luke, the Gospel of Luke is the longest Gospel of the four. And then you combine it with Acts. He has actually written about one-third of the New Testament. Add that to Paul, who traveled with him. Basically, between Paul and Luke, you have two-thirds of the New Testament being written between those two individuals. And so, probably the second most influential New Testament writer. We actually know very little about the man Luke. Tell me, what do you know about Luke? He's a physician. Tell me anything else you know about Luke. Hmm? He was what? Young? Young? Okay. How do you know that? We don't know a whole lot about Luke. Okay. Very good. Well, that's what we know. We know what he taught. But what do we know about the man? I got a picture up here. I don't think he was bald. I don't know. That's not a self-portrait. That's not a portrait of Luke. We don't really know about... We don't know where he was born. We don't know how old he was. We don't know how he came to Christ. We don't know how he died. We know that he wrote, and we know the things he wrote, but we know very, very little about the individual. And yet, we know that what he wrote was accurate, that it was inspired, it was detailed. In fact, even Paul calls the writings of Luke Scripture. All right? So, um, but very little is known about the individual Luke. We do know that his gospel is about God's plan. In fact, in, in Luke, towards the end of his, his uh, gospel, he writes this, um, recounting um, the words of Christ. He says, then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ suffered and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from 
on high. And so his gospel is about God's plan. He talks about how Christ must suffer and then be raised. And then that that message must go out into the world. And we, of course, see this in the book of Acts. So in Luke, the gospel, we see Jesus um, fulfilling the plan of God, um, teaching his disciples about that plan. And then in the second volume, uh, the book of Acts, we see that actually being implemented in the plan of God reaching out uh, literally into the world. And so we see this message about message from, from Luke. We also see then that his that Luke's Luke's writings, and I hate to separate the Gospel of Luke from Acts, because they really can't be separated. And so I'm very tempted, I'm not making any firm declaration, but I'm very tempted just to move on into Acts when we're done with Luke. Uh, It just makes sense. But regardless whether we do that or not, we're going to be referring to Acts all the time and referencing that because the two volumes go together. And in fact, it's very interesting because Luke begins in Jerusalem, and Acts ends in Rome. Isn't that really cool? It begins with really the, the birth of John, but then the birth of Christ. Uh, so the birth of John, and we see his father ministering in the temple. So it begins in Jerusalem, and when it ends, the work of Christ has gone out from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, which is exactly what Luke says this is all about. It's about promise and fulfillment. How God has made promises. Now we've received the fulfillment of those promises. Luke has a universal emphasis. In other words, Luke's gospel is for all. Luke has a very special interest in the outcast of society. Luke seems to love the downtrodden. For instance, we see that angels came to the shepherds. That's really interesting because shepherds were not the most um, highly regarded uh, individuals on the face of the earth. And angels came to shepherds. They didn't go to kings. And they didn't go to the wealthy. And they didn't go to the elite. They went to shepherds to proclaim the birth of Messiah. Simeon's prophecy says that this child is going to be a light to the Gentiles. We see throughout this that there is this constant desire to spread out to the Gentiles, to spread out to the downtrodden. Luke loves to talk about sinners, not in a negative sense, but how the gospel comes to sinners. In fact, Luke uses the word sinner 16 times more than all the other gospel writers combined. He seems to love the fact that Jesus came for sinners. In fact, the very theme, and you'll notice the title of our series, is to seek and to save the lost, which is what Jesus says. This is what I came to do. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Luke seems to love sinners. He focuses on outcasts. He focuses on the poor. Luke gives special attention to women who were certainly marginalized in the society in which Luke wrote. But he seems to give great emphasis and to give great dignity to the women who followed Christ and who, who received the ministry of Christ. Luke's gospel is universal in its scope. Luke shows compassion, the compassion of Christ on those whom society rejects. I think we can learn quite a bit 
from that to make sure that we do not disregard or neglect or overlook the, the poor and the downtrodden and the outcast and the foolish and the unwise and the unlearned and the unkept. Paul even tells us that God confounds the wise with the foolishness of the gospel. And that the gospel is foolishness to the wise, but to those who are being saved, it is life. Which kind of makes me think, well then, if God has called me by his grace, and I, through his spirit, seen the wisdom of his word, and the wise of this world don't receive the word, that would make me... Make me a fool. I know we like to think of ourselves as smart and kind of hip and with it. But God says, if you're a Christian, perhaps maybe you're not one of those elite. Maybe you're one of those outcasts. Anyways, the gospel is for all. Luke alone call of, of, the, of, the, of the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and we call those synoptic gospels, and I'm going to use that term periodically, so just so that we're all up to date. Synoptic simply means seen with the same eyes, sin, same, optic eye. Synoptic gospels, because uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar uh, to one another, and I'll spend a little bit of time mentioning that. But of the synoptic gospels, Luke alone calls Jesus the Savior. Luke really focuses a lot on prayer, and Luke perhaps is the gospel writer of the Holy Spirit. Luke loves the Holy Spirit and emphasizes the Holy Spirit. I know sometimes we read, we think, when we think of gospel writers and we think of the Holy Spirit, we think of John because John 14 through 16 has such a strong teaching about who the Holy Spirit is. But it's limited pretty much to those three or four chapters, whereas Luke begins with the Holy Spirit. And then all the way through, it's always referencing or alluding to the Holy Spirit. So it's not just one block of teaching like in John, it is a teaching and a revealing of the Holy Spirit from the very beginning to the very end. And so Luke is the gospel, perhaps, where we learn more about the Holy Spirit than any other. And so that's just a brief introduction. Let me read our text today, and then I'm going to begin actually at the end. I'm pretty certain about that. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so we begin with this letter to an individual by the name of Theophilus that he might have certainty. Now, we're probably wondering, well, then who in the world is Theophilus? And the answer to that question is, I really don't know. Um, so, because we don't know anything about Theophilus, we, we can pick out a few things. Number one, more likely than not, he is some man of, of high rank, most likely. He is called Most Excellent, and that is a title reserved for somebody who has rank. Some people have said, well, Theophilus, and they get into this etymological device, Theos is God, and uh, Philos would be 
friend or lover, so it's a, maybe it's written to a group of people, lovers of God or friends of God. But you wouldn't call a group most excellent. Most excellent is something that is a term that is reserved for an individual. So we would say that um, Theophilus most likely is some man of rank, perhaps a patron of Luke, basically paid his expenses or somehow supported him. So somehow Theophilus is in close relationship with Luke. Other than that, the question is, is he a Christian or is he seeking to become a Christian or what's his status? And we really don't know. But I think the emphasis of the book would lean us to the idea then that Theophilus most likely, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, most likely was an individual, a Gentile. His name is Greek, so he's probably a Gentile. Um, Well, pretty certain he's a Gentile. And that he's heard the gospel, probably a believer, because Luke isn't so much providing... Uh, uh, an evangelistic report, but making sure that Theophilus has a surety assurance about the things that he's already been taught. And so probably a man who was a follower of Christ, but he has some doubts or some questions, which then, of course, leads us to the question, what would be causing Theophilus to doubt? What were some of the uncertainties that Luke was addressing to give assurance to this man, most excellent Theophilus? And there are a number of things, but let me point out a few. The first problem, and we pick all this stuff up just by reading the book of Luke. All right, we don't have to make this up. We just read the book of Luke, and you can see where his emphasis is, and you can see what he tends to highlight. And from there, you can say, well, these are the things that he's trying to communicate to Theophilus and to us about being certain or being sure of, of certain things. And the first thing would be to have assurance about salvation. In other words, this, how could Gentiles be included as God's people on equal basis with the Jews? Because Theophilus is a Greek name. And so how could a man who is not part of the nation of Israel, how could this person then be considered to have equal standing before God as one who was part of the, the nation of Israel? And this is why I think Luke spent so much time dealing with the outcasts and dealing with sinners and dealing with those who are marginalized and on the fringes of society. He's not just saying that those who are born into the right families and those who have the right mm, credentials become believers, but those, even those who are on the outskirts of society, those who are on the fringes of society, they, including you, most excellent Theophilus, though you were not born to, you are not a, a child of Abraham by birth, you can be certain that the work of Christ is sufficient for you and that you are a co-member, as Paul would talk about in Colossians, that you are um, you share in the same privileges as those who are descendants of Abraham. And so, most excellent Theophilus, I want you to understand that the that your heritage does not limit or hinder your participation in the full assurance of what Jesus Christ has purchased. That's good for us to know. We need to be certain that what Christ has done for us on the cross and through his resurrection and ascension into heaven and his now being seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. We need to have assurance that that is, that those benefits are 100% ours. 
as well. Are you sure about that? If not, keep coming back. That's what we're going to be studying. So that would be the first thing that we would see um, that might cause question. Another one was, why was there such a negative response to the Jews towards the gospel? This was a paradox because the target audience, that is the household of Israel, the gospel was, was received negatively. They received the gospel negatively. How does that happen? If God came to preach to the nation of Israel and he put on flesh and dwelt among us and he came with a gospel message to the household of Israel, how is it then that they rejected that message? That would cause some confusion and some doubt. Why would God's plan meet with hostility? That's a good question. Well, if it's really God's plan, I would think that at least the target audience would have accepted it. How does that happen? Is this really of God? And Luke goes on and begins to explain how God uses rejection to fulfill his promise and to fulfill his purposes. This is all part of the book of Luke. Another question is, how does a crucified Jesus fit into God's plan? You need to realize that crucifixion was a major stumbling block. The cross was not something you talked about in polite society. You did not sit around the dinner table and talk about crucifixion. It was abhorrent. It would be like your kids coming to the dinner table or family time or whatever and using coarse, I can't say the words, but coarse or inappropriate language. You, you wouldn't say that. You would say, how dare you go to your room, wash your mouth out with soap, whatever you do. That's what you would say. You did not come to the table and talk about crucifixion. And yet, how then does a crucified man be seen as king and lord of the universe. This doesn't make sense. This would cause somebody to doubt. Greeks saw the cross as foolishness. So how does a crucified leader bring about God's purposes? And how could this crucified leader, who's now absent from us, exercise his presence and be regarded as the center of God's plan? So Theophilus is asking very basic questions. He's like, well, how does this work? Luke is saying, I'm going to write two volumes. I'm going to tell you exactly how it works. O most excellent Theophilus. And finally, one of the issues would be, what does it mean to respond to Jesus? What an appropriate question. What does it mean to be a disciple? How does one actually follow Christ? And so Luke defines the mission of Jesus and his disciples. And then he explains how Jesus prepared his disciples for his departure and prepared them to minister until he returns. And so we see that in the book of Luke, Jesus preparing his disciples. And then in the book of Acts, them going out and caring about the plan that Jesus commissioned them to do. And so these are some of the issues. So in summary then, um, don't get your hope. not the summary of the sermon, just the summary of that book. Topic. So if you're new here today, don't, don't think for a moment we're done. Luke writes to assure Theophilus about the plan of God. That is, what is a disciple called to be? How a disciple participates in the community's task to proclaim Jesus and preaching, the live, preaching and living in a hostile world. And so we see somewhat similar uh, to the book of Daniel. How do we live out the, the Christian life in a hostile world? in a world that considers what you and I believe is utter foolishness. 
Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and they just look at you like you're out of it? What a nut job. You actually believe that? It's fine that you go to church, but it's another thing for you actually to believe it. I mean, you really believe it. Yeah, I really believe it. I really believe that there was a man by the name of Jesus Christ died on the cross, bore our sins in his body on the tree. And here's the crazy thing. I actually believe that he died. But here's the even crazier thing. I believe that that dead man rose from the grave. Oh, you want something even crazier? That he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father. You want something even, even crazier? He's coming back again. Yeah, I really believe it. What does it mean to live in a world that says that is just nutty? So, that kind of gets through some of our introductory materials. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 and um, just highlight this. First of all, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished amongst us, um, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers, it seemed good to me, um, having followed things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus. Here's the interesting thing about this prologue, is that what Luke is about to tell us is rooted in history. And this is really, really important. And I would say, maybe not completely, correct me if I'm wrong. Later you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm giving you permission. But I would say is unique amongst religions. That is, that Christianity is rooted in history. And I think that's really important. In other words, it's not a faith that is derived from some private speculations of philosophical thinkers. It is grounded in verifiable historical fact. In other words, so Islam, from what I understand, uh, Muhammad went into a cave and received special revelation from, from, I suppose, an angel. Joseph Smith looked into a hat and got special revelation. How do you verify that? The Christian faith is grounded and rooted in history. Think about this. Paul says our faith is worthless if Christ did not rise from the dead. In other words, if this historical event actually did not occur, then we are the most miserable of all and your faith is useless. You're still in your sins. Everything about Christianity is rooted in historical and verifiable fact. Not personal opinion. I mean, how many times you say, I mean, everybody, they, they've got their own, own religion today. You say, well, I believe this is what I believe. Where did you get that? Ask them that. Where, how did you come to that determination? How did you come to that conclusion that that's true? Well, I believe that whatever, God is going to let me do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. He's going to leave me alone, except when I really, really need him. Then he's going to come in and intervene on my behalf only for my benefit and the other's detriment. And then he's going to go away and leave me alone. Where did you get that? Where did that come from? That's a fair question. They, they may have made it up in their mind. That's fine. But Christian faith isn't like that. It is rooted in historical, verifiable history. And this is what Luke is saying. It's like, I didn't make this up. And he says that it's something that I've carefully investigated. In other words, Luke is really concerned about verifiable, actual history. I've gone out and I've Check my sources. Here's the interesting thing. Luke is not an eyewitness of any of these things, to our knowledge. But he goes and he, he gets witnesses. He finds out. 
He's a careful investigator. He's a careful historian. And so Luke had sources. What were some of Luke's sources? Well, I would certainly say the Gospel of Mark was one of Luke's sources, and this opens up a whole can of worms. But we Bible students debate over which was the first Gospel written, and I, I hold to Mark being the first Gospel written. You can say Matthew was if you want. We know John wasn't, so you can say Matthew was. Or you can say Luke was. Um, I think Mark was. Well, Mark would have been one of his sources, and, and we know that because um, Luke borrows a lot from Mark. You will see exact, exact phrasing from Mark um, written by Luke. So somebody copied somebody. I think Mark came first. So Luke says, yeah, Mark made an accurate account. I'm going to borrow from Mark. How about the apostles? They were still around. Peter was still around. John was still around. I don't know about James. But a lot of them were around. Some of even the lesser known ones, you know, Bartholomew and Andrew. And some of these guys you don't hear a lot about. They were around. They would have been able to, be, to uh, give an account. How about the women who followed Jesus? There were a whole bunch of women who followed Jesus. These would have been per- possible sources. The 120 in the upper room. Luke seems to know that there were 120 in the upper room in the book of Acts. He knows that that number, would they have been available to him? How about Barsabbas and, and Matthias? Remember the two who they drove lots for to be one of the followers of Christ? Or one of the, the 12 apostles? Well, anyways, that's another story. But yeah, they, they were around. And they were eyewitnesses of the events of Christ. We know that Luke... Luke traveled with Paul, so Paul would have been a good source, and perhaps even Mary. And we can, I think, confidently say that Mary would have been the mother of Jesus, a source, because Luke gives very detailed account of the birth narrative. In fact, he gives the most detailed account of the birth of Christ than any of the other gospel writers. And so Luke probably said, hey, Mary, what happened? I got my pen in my hand, and here we go. So Luke carefully invested investigated these things. And then it says that, uh, you know, I've undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So these were things that had been handed down by eyewitnesses and ministers. And this idea of being handed down is actually a technical term for conveying authoritative documents. I put some references in your notes and you can look those up. But in other words, handed down is not just a haphazard you know, here it is. This is actually the conveying of authoritative documents from one person to another. And so when Luke uses this term, I believe he is indicating to us that what I have are authoritative sources and authoritative documents that have been given to us by eyewitnesses. Um, these aren't frivolous type of um, reports. See, the stress is on the credibility of the witnesses here. And so writing as a historian... Um, so that Theophilus and us may be certain of what God has fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And then that's the next important thing. What has been fulfilled? And that's and, and I'm reading the ESV and it says been accomplished. And many of your Bibles say have been accomplished. But some of them, I don't know who all has, has been fulfilled in the first verse. I like that word fulfilled. It actually, that word that's translated comes from uh, uh, a root that is often translated as being filled or fulfilled. And it's a very, very uh, rich 
study of that word, but it is something that has been filled up, something that has come to completion, something that has been fulfilled. In other words, Luke is telling us that I'm writing to you about what God has brought to full measure. And it is God because um, this is in, in, in a... It's just technical, but it's a passive verb. So that just means that the... That the, the um, that Theophilus or Luke is, not the, is, is the recipient of the action, not the one making the action. So they've received this. They've received this from God. And it's also interesting because the way this is phrased is that what has been fulfilled has come from God, has come from outside of us. And the way we read this is that its effects are continuing on even now and into the future. And so what God has fulfilled is not something that was fulfilled in times past and then completed and done no more to have effect, but the effects of what was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ has continuing and ongoing effect even to us today. And so the work of Christ for us is still in full effect. And it doesn't wane a little bit. It doesn't erode over time. It doesn't lose its power over the centuries. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are the recipients of that work and it has not waned one bit since the work was done. And so God has brought about to full measure all of the things that he has promised. So what was fulfilled was the saving purpose of God. And that saving purpose of God was first spoken to us, and you know where, in Genesis 3.15. All right? And so you, many of you know that verse. You should know that verse. And so where God first promises that he's going to bring about a Savior. And so from Genesis and into Exodus and Leviticus and all the way through, through the law, through the prophets and through the writings, God has been promising to bring about redemption and a solution to the problem of sin. And Luke is saying that that has now been fulfilled among us. In the sending of his Son as the Savior of sinners. And Jesus himself said this, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost, which was God's plan in the very beginning. And so, this is not simply a report of historical events, but it is an account of God's fulfillment of his promises in the Old Testament. And so, here's the thing. So oftentimes, I think too oftentimes, the word that gets preached from too many pulpits is not God-centered. It's not theocentric. It's not Christocentric. It's not centered on the glory of Christ or centered on God. It's not even centered on the gospel. Too oftentimes, it's centered on felt needs and what I need and what I think I need and how I think I can be a more successful person in my job and how I can um, self-actualize and all of these things. And that's just utterly and completely backwards. Because here's what happens when we... Go there, well, it's treating God as the means to an end. In other words, the end is for me to be happy in my marriage. And God will help me do that. Or the means is for me to be a successful business person and make a lot of money. And God is the means for me to do that. Or my, the, the goal is for me to be happy, healthy, and wise. And God is the means to do that. That's utterly backwards. God is not the means. God is the goal. The goal is not your happiness. The goal is not your good marriage. The goal is not any of those things. As good as they are, the goal is God himself. He's not the means to some end. He is the end. He is the chief end. 
end destination. That when we come to a saving knowledge of who Christ is and we come into relationship, uh, a full, unbroken, unmarred relationship with the living God, you have arrived. I pray that you would have a great marriage and a successful business and all of those things. There are many believers in this world who have none of that. God is not the means to achieve something else as though God, these other things are better than God. Happiness and success is better than God and I just need God to help me get to what I really want to get. God wants you, Him, wants you to know that He is the ultimate He is the ultimate. And that when we are in an unbroken and unfettered and unmarred relationship with him, all these other things fall into place. And so Luke now writes to speak of the fulfillment that Christ has had in these Old Testament prophecies. And, and Luke writes an orderly account. He says, and I wanted to put it in an orderly account. Now, I want to make sure that you understand that when Luke talks about an orderly, purposeful account, he's not speaking that he's writing these things in theologi- or in chronological sequence. I know that's really important to us here in, in modern, the modern West, but to ancient Near Eastern or to Hebrew writers, chronological precision was not necessary. It's not the most important thing. And so you, you will note, if you read the Bible fairly often, you will see that um, chronological uh, precision is certainly not their highest aim. But Luke wrote, Luke wrote an orderly account. And he arranges his material like many uh, biblical authors did. They arranged their materials. John arranged his materials. Why? How did John arrange his materials? So that you would know that Christ is the Son of God and, and knowing this, you would have life in his name. That, that's why. That's why he arranged his material. They had a salvation historical um, uh, process. And so, for instance, you'll notice in Luke that um, the order of the temptations is different, say, than Mark. So I know people will say, oh, see, it contradicts itself. It doesn't contradict itself. Yes, they did not write in the exact same order. But remember when we studied Joshua? Joshua is not in chronological order. There's all sorts of things that are out of whack there. All kinds of things. Book of Jeremiah is not written in order. All sorts of things that get jumbled around. And John, the Gospel of John certainly isn't written in chronological, precise order. So like I said, it's a big deal to us. Not a big deal to uh, ancient Hebrews. And um, so... This, they're trying to make a point. He's trying to show, most excellent Theophilus, that you can be assured about what, what you've been taught. And I'm going to arrange things. None of these things he makes up. He just arranges them in a way so that he makes his theological point. And his point is this, that salvation, the progress of salvation has come under God, by God's direction and it begins... With John, it moves to the disciples of Christ. It goes through Paul. It starts in Israel. It goes to the to Rome. It begins with Jews and it goes to Gentiles. It begins with promise. It ends in fulfillment. 
It begins with the infancy, infancy of Jesus. It goes to Jesus and then on to the church. And this is Luke's scheme of putting his material together. And so I wrote an orderly account. It's not all haphazard or anything, but I am trying to let you know that God began his work and this is where he began it. This is where he's ending it. And I want you to see the sequence of how uh, God fulfilled his promise through all of these historical verifiable events. That's where it's going. And then finally with this, so that you would be certain, literally so that you would have full assurance or so that you would know thoroughly and it's not only for Theophilus, it's for us. That what Luke is revealing is not subjective truth, but it is objective truth. I, I know that in this day and age that there is this, uh, I guess, phobia against objective truth. And I think that's probably because if there is an objective truth, then we actually have to live by it. And so everybody believes well, there's no objective truth. There's only, truth is only subjective. The problem with believing that truth is subjective is trying to live consistently as though truth were subjective. Um, just try it. Good luck. I'll visit you in the hospital. <laughs> or in jail. One of the two. But if these things are true, and if this is ab absolutely objectively true, that these things actually did happen, here's the problem, and here's why people don't like the fact of objective truth. Because if the gospel is true, and objectively true, and historically factual, here's the problem for fallen humans such as us. If it's true, then you must submit to it. Or you have to find a lie and deny it somehow. But those are really only your only choices. You must believe it. And you must submit your life then to the person of Jesus Christ, who is an objective, verifiable, historical person, who objectively, verifiably died on the cross, who objectively, verifiably was put in a tomb, and who was objectively and verifiably raised from the dead on the third day, and who was objectively and verifiably risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, and you must submit your life to that one individual. Or you can say, well, I, don't, I just want to live my life subjectively, but you can't do that. So your only choice then is to fall on your knees and believe that Jesus Christ has died for your sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what Luke's written for, so that you can know and have full assurance that that actually happened and that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and to seek and to save the lost of which all of us were one. Perhaps some of us still are, but Christ came, he saved those whom he has called. And so the offer then is for you. The question then is, will we live for Christ or will we be scattered like dust, as Luke writes in 2018? And so you can have full assurance. You do not have to speculate. Well, gee, I don't know. Did this really happen? Yeah, it actually happened. That's why Luke's writing, so that you can fully know and be fully assured that these things are true, that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Not just seek the lost, but to save the lost. And if you're lost today, if you've never come to a place of confessing your sins before Jesus Christ and calling upon him as Lord of the universe, I want you to know that today's the day. I'm glad you're here today because we can take care of that matter right now. It's the most important thing you will ever do. So I will conclude with this. And by this, I really mean that I will conclude with the message. 
First of all, this. A right view of Jesus is indispensable to salvation. If you have a wrong view of Jesus, you will not be saved. So if you think that um, Jesus is angry with you and he is not your mediator, you have a wrong view of salvation and you will not be saved. If you believe that Jesus is somehow the archangel Michael, then you are not. You have a wrong view of Christ and that Christ does not save. If you believe that Christ is somehow the brother of Satan or Lucifer and he is a created being, that Christ will not save you. All right? And you are lost and you will die in your sins. A right view of Jesus is essential. It is indispensable to be saved. Luke's going to present that to us. If you have questions about that, I will be happy. So will Jaime be happy. Probably just about anybody in here would love to sit down. Uh, Nelson would love to sit down and talk with you about the, the biblical view of who Jesus is. Indispensable for salvation. He cannot be whoever you want him to be. And Luke writes then to show that Jesus is the eternal God coming to the flesh to seek and to save the lost rooted in the historical record and that all who follow this Jesus will be saved. And of that, you can be certain. I'm certain. Let's stand and let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for inviting us into your presence this day. That your church has gathered at this location, at this time, on this day, to sing songs to you of praise and adoration, declaring who you are, of praying prayers and calling out to you, knowing that you will answer them. And of hearing what it is that you have written in your word and knowing, Lord God, that it is true. I pray, Father God, that if there are those here who, who doubt and who don't know, Lord God, it's good to ask questions. I pray, Father God, that they would seek someone today and seek to find the answer to those questions. Lord, if there are those here today who don't, who've never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, that this would be the day that that would turn, that your Holy Spirit is convicting them right now, And that they can do nothing other than to say, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Call them, Lord God. Call them effectually so they might know that you are God. For those of us who are here, Lord God, I pray that as Satan buffets us this week, seeks to cause doubt, Lord God, we would realize that we can be certain you have fulfilled your promises in Jesus Christ our Lord and that you have sent and that Jesus has sent his spirit to confirm and assure us of these things. And so Lord imprint these things on our heart and mind I pray that if there's anything that I've said Lord God that is inaccurate Lord that you would um, that those things would be purged by your spirit but those things that have said that have been accurate would would bore into our hearts and take root. So we ask this for the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.